is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. In this, the 100th episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Steven Spellman, who is Vice President of Research and Senior Scientific Director of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be The Match. In our program today, we talk about bone marrow transplants. Now, one thing I believe is that most physicians may agree with is that it is not a secret that in the area of hematology, the likelihood of finding a fully matched unrelated donor for a patient who needs a bone marrow transplant varies greatly depending on the patient's ethnic background and that ethnically diverse patients may have, historically speaking, been at a disadvantage. However, new research shows that when donor registry models are expanded to include mismatched unrelated donors, finding access for patients may greatly increase. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Oncoisine Brief. The Oncoisine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncoisine, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer diagnosis and treatment and cancer prevention. For more information on how to support this program, visit our website, Oncoisine, at oncozine.com. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, Text the word CANCER to 66866, and we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. This is the Yonkazine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncazine, at www.oncazine.com. In the studio with me is Steven Spellman, Vice President of Research and Senior Scientific Director of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be The Match. We talk about the complexity of finding a fully matched unrelated donor for a patient who needs a bone marrow transplant and how success varies greatly depending on the patient's ethnic background and that ethnically diverse patients have, historically speaking, been at a disadvantage. We also talk about new research demonstrating that when donor registry models are expanded to include mismatched unrelated donors, finding access for patients may greatly improve. Steve, welcome to the Youngest in Brief. Thank you, Peter. Before we come to talk about the programs that you're developing, tell me a little bit more about the kind of diseases for which a bone marrow transplant may be considered by a treating physician. Sure. There's many diseases that can be treated with a bone marrow transplant. The majority are hematological malignancies, so blood cancers, leukemia, or lymphoma, or myelodysplastic syndromes make up the majority of the transplants that are performed today, as well as for treatment of some non-malignant diseases, such as sickle cell disease or severe aplastic anemia. So other diseases of the, of the blood system where a transplant can replace those disease cells and restore full functionality to a patient in need. When you look at the disease area, it's very broad and includes cancers and non-cancers alike. But your program is very specific and includes when and where it can be used. So tell me a little bit more about the National Bone Marrow Program and Be The Match. Sure, I'd be happy to tell you a bit about the National Marrow Donor Program or, or Be the Match. So, we are the U.S. registry for unrelated bone marrow and cord blood donors. We maintain a registry of, well, with access of up to 
23 million donors up front on the registry, as well as access to 40, upwards of 40 million donors worldwide. We have an active donor recruitment program where we're adding new donors to the registry to increase the diversity of donor HLA types, which is what we match for donors and patients that are proceeding to transplant, as well as adding cord blood transplant. We also work with a large network of transplant centers to facilitate the search process and donor selection. And once those donors are selected, we have a program or or a group of case managers that help manage all of the logistics, as well as donor center managers that that are managing the health assessments and the potential donors that are being selected as a potential match for a patient, and also help facilitate the collection of those cells and courier them to the the transplant center at the time of need. That's a kind of a high-level overview of of kind of the program in general. We also have a very active research program through a collaboration with the Medical College of Wisconsin that we call the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research. And there, we're capturing data on patients receiving allogeneic transplants or non-self transplants through the national facilitated through the National Marrow Donor Program and other registries, as well as data on autologous transplants, whether that be chimeric antigen receptor T-cell transplants or unmanipulated marrow transplants using autologous or self-cells. And we follow those patients longitudinally up until they're either lost to follow-up or, or expire post-transplant. You started saying that you have a large donor program. So let's start there. I remember a few years back that during medical society meetings, including those of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the American Association for Cancer Research, and the American Society of Hematology, an often heard complaint was that it is so difficult to get people involved and actually be able to successfully recruit donors. And there may be different reasons for this, because people don't understand what is involved, or they may be afraid or don't understand the need. And there may be a lot of other different reasons why people do not like to participate or become a donor. So tell me a little bit more about your recruiting efforts and why people should consider this a valid option if they are a match. Well, the donor recruitment efforts are, are really targeted towards younger donors. We have, we have research that's been conducted over time uh, showing that the outcomes tend to be much better. As the using a, a donor on the younger age spectrum, we recruit donors starting at the age of, of 18, and you can remain on the registry until your 61st birthday. The vast majority of donors that are used today are under the age of 35 because of the, the research that I, I mentioned initially. And so there's an ongoing effort to bring on those younger donors to the registry. We've also noted that within the U.S. population, we've seen increasing diversity in the younger population as international borders erode and we see uh, more intermingling of of people worldwide. You get new combinations of HLA genes that are are now intermingling and and adding more diversity to the registry is critical to be able to find matches uh, for patients in need. And so even with the large pool of donors that are available today worldwide, upwards of 40 million, we still do not have a a full match or what we would consider a full match for all patients in need. And that really ranges quite substantially by the racial and ethnic background of the patient, where 
if patients that are of African-American descent have a, a much lower rate of finding a match on the registry at around 28, 29% to find a full match compared to a Caucasian or a white non-Hispanic patient where we have a, a higher likelihood, so about 79% in that group. And that, that's due to many reasons, one being, well, the overall composition of the registry as it's evolved over time, is, is skewed towards a, a non-Hispanic white population. And we've continued to recruit in ethnically diverse populations. However, we see more diversity in HLA genes in the ethnically diverse populations, meaning we would have to recruit a much, much larger cohort to be able to have a match for, for all patients in need. And so that's what's so, so exciting about some of the new strategies that uh, I described in the uh, Oncozine article that was recently published. Now, for our listeners, the article you've just mentioned was published in Oncozine. The article was titled, Is Finding a Donor for All in Need of Allogeneic HCT Possible? New Modeling Says Yes. And it was published in Oncozine on September the 5th, 2022. Let's take a break. This is the Young Gazin Brief. And if you're just joining us in today's episode of the Young Gazin Brief, I'm talking with Stephen Spellman, Vice President of Research and Senior Scientific Director of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be the Match. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Young Gazin Brief. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others' huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Yonkazine Brief. If you're just joining us in today's episode of the Oncosine Brief, I'm talking with Stephen Spellman, Vice President of Research and Senior Scientific Director of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be The Match. Now, your research, which you referenced in the article, suggests, if I understand this correctly, that you can minimize the risk between different populations and make bone marrow transplantations available for more people. Is that the case? Tell me a little bit more about this. That's true. So traditionally, using traditional techniques for transplant, there's a risk associated with HLA mismatching. And HLA is human leukocyte antigens. These are the genes that we match for patients that are proceeding to transplant, focused on three genes at, at 
in the HLA class one family, so HLA A, B, C, and then at class two, HLA DR B1, DQB1, and DPB1 is, is generally what we're concerned about. And the better precision that you have in that matching using traditional, what we call calcineurin inhibitor-based graft-versus-host disease prevention strategies, shows that the best outcomes with a, an 8 of 8 match or a 10 of 10 match, 8 of 8 match meaning match at HLA, A, B, C, D, or B1, a 10 of 10 match being a match at HLA, A, B, C, D, or B1, and D, Q, B1. So historical studies have shown that with each mismatch, there is approximately a 10% decrement in survival out to about five years. So an 8 of 8 match doing 10% better than a 7 of 8 um, and doing 10% better than a 6 of 8. What these new strategies, which were really pioneered in haploidentical transplants, so a haploidentical donor being a related family member that is a half match. They, they match for at least one chromosome carrying HLA genes between the donor and the patient, can match it at some others, but will tend to be about a half match, so a four of eight or a five of 10, depending on the, the definition that you want to use. And these new strategies that mainly have employed the use of an old chemotherapy drug, cyclophosphamide, given in the early post infusion period. So post-transplant, roughly on days three and five, post-infusion of the graft, which giving this chemotherapy helps eliminate those cells that are reacting to the mismatched HLA in a way. The HLA is seen on almost every nucleated cell in the body. So you infuse cells that recognize that mismatch that will expand very rapidly post-infusion, cyclophosphamide will eliminate some of those cells as well as inducing what we believe is induce uh, tolerance through shifting to a more Treg profile on those, on those T cells that are, that are alloreactive. Now, that has worked quite well in this heavily mismatched related haploidentical population. And now there have been several trials that have uh, begun to employ this in the unrelated donor setting. One that was uh, sponsored through the National Marrow Donor Program that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2021 that we called the 15-MMUD study. 15 was started in 2015. MMUD is mismatched unrelated donor. And there we saw very, very good outcomes uh, in patients that received heavily mismatched transplants. So the about 60% of the population received a 7 of 8 match. Uh, about 40% received more than one mismatch, so a 6 of 8 or less, all the way down to a 4 of 8. And we saw no difference between the 7 of 8 and, and less than 7 of 8 matched groups in that cohort. So really suggesting that even in a multiply mismatched setting that you can have quite good outcomes. In both the mismatched unrelated donor setting as well as in the haplo setting, have seen good comparisons between well-matched donors, so that being either a matched sibling donor, fully matched sibling donor, or a matched unrelated donor, and those mismatched donors that are receiving uh, the post-transplant cyclophosphamide-based GVHD prophylaxis strategy. So suggesting that this can help eliminate that uh, additional risk of mismatching in allogeneic transplantation, or at least minimize that risk. There's still some risk that's there, but it, it is getting to the point where we could potentially be on par between matched and mismatched graft sources as, as the techniques are refined over time. And that is based on the modeling strategy you're developing. And this is now in clinical trials, correct? 
the transplant approach, not necessarily, but the modeling that was described in the Oncozine was really showing the potential for this application of mismatched unrelated donors. And to give an example, so I had mentioned that uh, African-American patients have a, a roughly less than a 30% chance of finding an 8 of 8 match or having an available 8 of 8 match on the registry. When we consider mismatch graft sources, so considering a 7 of 8 or a 6 of 8 or a 5 of 8, getting down to a 6 of 8 level, we would have matches available for 95% of patients, if not more. That's even seen using restricting the population of donors to those younger than the age of 35. So even when we partition the registry to those donors that are younger, lead to better outcomes, we would still have a, a match for all patients in need, essentially, to the 95% level of the 6 of 8. And when we go to a 5 of 8, that allows us to find a match for essentially every patient in need, greater than 99% of all patients searching the registry. With that, you would also have much more choice. So being able to find that younger donor, potentially if you wanted to match for other factors such as blood type or CMV status or cytomegalovirus uh, exposure prior to donation, that would be possible with that expanded pool of donors that could be suitable for, for the patient in need. Really getting to a point where there isn't a donor barrier anymore for proceeding to transplant, which has traditionally been, been a concern in the field. So basically, if I understand this correctly, this eliminates the ethnic background as a potential barrier and it diminishes other reasons and risks limiting potential donors who do not match, right? Are there downsides to this approach? We're still learning, Peter. So this has been used in, I had mentioned the 15 MMUD trial, which showed very good outcomes. And we presented those results out to three-year results at the European Blood and Marrow Transplant Group meeting earlier this year, showing that those good outcomes, positive outcomes persist out to three years post-transplant. So encouraging news to suggest that, that this still leads to uh, positive longer-term outcomes. That's kind of intermediate term at this point. But when we look back at the experience in the haploidentical related transplant setting, that this technique has been in use since the early 2010s, so around 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, it really started to take off and was used in a, in a generalizable way across the transplant community, have continued to see durable long-term outcomes in, in that population, which lends some uh, encouragement to uh, what we can anticipate with a, a less mismatched, unrelated donor in a similar vein. So we're excited to see where this takes us in the future. And so I had mentioned the, the 15 MMUD trial, which was focused on use of bone marrow grafts. Now we have a, another trial sponsored through the National Marrow Donor Program, Be the Match, which launched last year that we're calling the ACCESS trial, which is evaluating mismatched unrelated donors with a similar post-transplant cyclophosphamide-based GVHD prevention strategy, however, using peripheral blood stem cell grafts, which have traditionally been associated with higher rates of, of chronic graft-versus-host disease in the uh, calcinurin inhibitor-based uh, GVHD prophylaxis setting, but has been used 
quite favorably and has led to uh, good outcomes in the haploidentical related setting. So we're confident that this will translate well into peripheral blood stem cell transplants in adults. And we're also in that same trial evaluating bone marrow transplants in a pediatric population using mismatched unrelated donors. And so we're excited to see what those pediatric results look like in the future as well. Now, if you can, tell me a little bit more about the difference of using this approach, this technology, in pediatrics, in younger children versus adult patients. Because children, especially younger children, respond differently to medical treatments. So tell me a little bit more about the impact of this approach in the treatment of children. Well, the impact here would be, again... Children and young adults still suffer from the same issues of donor availability based on race and ethnicity. And so this could lead to an increase in the, in the donor options available for those patients. And, and one of the reasons that bone marrow is used in the pediatric setting is, is because of the, the observation that I mentioned earlier about the risks of chronic graft-versus-host disease using peripheral blood stem cell grafts. And so doing a transplant in a child that has a hopefully a long life ahead of them, giving them a chronic disease like chronic graft-versus-host disease, if you can avoid it, is, is worth pursuing. In addition, bone marrow grafts are, well, for a child, are, are easier to obtain. Less cells are required just because of size. Uh, in general. And so peripheral blood stem cells are tied to higher cell doses, slightly uh, faster engraftment, but with that associated risk of, of increased chronic graft-versus-host disease. However, what we don't know at this point is whether the post-transplant cyclophosphamide-based GVHD prophylaxis approach could mitigate not just the risk of, of the HLA mismatch, but also the graft uh, characteristic risk that's associated with a peripheral blood stem cell infusion. So that long-term outcomes will be interesting to follow in that cohort going forward through access to see if that changes or abrogates that uh, additional chronic GVHD risk that's been seen traditionally with use of peripheral blood stem cells. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Steven Spellman. The world needs more heroes, more action-oriented do-gooders, more here's how I can help right-hand men and women. The world of sarcoma is no different. And if you're thinking, what is sarcoma? We're glad you're listening. Sarcoma is a rare cancer of the body's soft tissue and bone, a cancer affecting tens of thousands of Americans every year. A cancer that has more than 70 subtypes, many of which require unique treatment options at various stages of discovery. And we lose thousands of lives to sarcoma in the U.S. on a yearly basis. The Sarcoma Foundation of America partners with heroes, do-gooders, and helpers from all walks of life to advocate for sarcoma patients through funded research and widespread awareness efforts. New and more effective sarcoma therapies are out there. We just need to work together to discover them and find a cure for this cancer once and for all. Now is the time to step up and fight the good fight against sarcoma. Join forces by visiting curesarcoma.org to learn more. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Oncazine Brief, I'm talking with Stephen Spellman, the Vice President of Research and Senior Director 
of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be The Match. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. It's interesting to see how this may bring benefits to children. Now, as the scientific director of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, you're also responsible for the Graft versus Host Disease Working Committee. Tell me a little bit more about the impact graft versus host disease has in the use of bone marrow transplants and the treatment of cancer. Just to define graft versus host disease, so this is a, a post-transplant complication common to allogeneic transplant that is caused by the procedure. So this is the new cells that are growing in the host. If there's some mismatch to well, major histocompatibility antigens like HLA or minor histocompatibility antigens can lead to recognition of the host tissues by the new graft as, as foreign and can cause complications that usually man- that will typically manifest in the skin or the gut, the eyes, and other tissues that can lead to high rates of mortality and morbidity. So there are powerful drugs that are given during the transplant procedure to try and mitigate those risks, but generally are not 100% effective in that setting. And so we do see a a reasonable amount of of graft-versus-host disease in most situations. And in the early post-transplant period, it's not necessarily a bad thing, especially in the setting of of malignant disease, where you're also getting the benefit of what we call a graft-versus-leukemia effect. So it's a bit of that balance. So having kind of on-target versus off-target effects of this alloreactivity that's that's caused by the graft. Now, these new strategies, well, the the one that I've talked about most in this interview so far has been post-transplant cyclophosphamide. And the use of post-transplant cyclophosphamide has shown much lower rates of what we call severe acute GVHD, so grades three to four acute GVHD, where the highest risks of mortality and morbidity are if that develops, are, are much lower using that strategy than traditional calcineurin inhibitor-based GVHD prophylaxis strategies. And that's also been seen in lower rates of chronic GVHD as well, where if chronic GVHD develops or acute GVHD develops, it tends to be a milder case in that setting, which is encouraging, not completely eliminating it, but if it does manifest, that it does tend to be lower severity. So to frame this, what you're trying to accomplish with this program and the various studies and ongoing research is to get better treatment options for an ethnically diverse population while at the same time minimizing their risk. Peter, I think that's a good way to sum it up. It's it's also expanding donor options to all patients in need. So not just an ethnically diverse population, but there are non-Hispanic whites that also do not have have matches on the registry as well. And for all those all patients that do not have a, a full match either within the family or on the registry, this is a an opportunity to mitigate the risk of mismatching for all patients in need. So being able to expand that donor pool, lower risk of, of post-transplant complications with the mismatching and better tolerance of that mismatching in the long run. So getting to the point where we can eliminate this, this donor access barrier for all patients in need. So let me ask you about disparities in healthcare. First of all, disparities in healthcare can be seen in a variety of forms, including the lack of available treatment options. For example, and this may be a little bit out of the scope of our discussion today, but less than a decade ago, a disease like triple negative breast cancer 
which is predominantly seen in African-American women and women under the age of 40 years of age, diagnosed with breast cancer, was virtually untreatable. But over the years, and following very hard work and a lot of research, much has changed. And there are now multiple treatment options for triple negative breast cancer. Going back to your area of expertise, and if we look at the work of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the American Association for Cancer Research, and the American Society of Hematology, as well as many other organizations, we see that there are a lot of different and ongoing projects designed to eliminate disparities in healthcare, especially in oncology and hematology. How does what you're doing help in eliminating disparities? Well, the approach that we've discussed today helps eliminate that donor barrier, which is, which is critical. There are other factors that influence outcome post-transplant as well. And so there's been some interesting research by us and others in recent years, um, kind of highlighting the, the access to transplant and, and showing improvements over time, whether that's tied to the Affordable Care Act and, and better access to insurance, and but leading to higher rates or rates nearly on par for various diseases based on, on race and ethnicity. Now, their issue has not been solved by any means. There are certain diseases that are more prevalent in ethnically diverse populations, and we, we don't see a higher rate of transplant in those populations, suggesting that not all patients that could benefit from the procedure are able to access that. But the National Marrow Donor Program is pursuing that in, in several different ways. We have a, an active patient services program that offers grants to help break down some of those financial barriers to transplant, whether that's access to transportation or support in general for caregivers during the, during the transplant procedure. And that's great. That'll help get people through the process. But what we also want to get to is a point where we have less of a need for supportive care post-transplant as well. And so getting to the point where we have less toxic therapies, less of a need for duration of immunosuppression post-transplant, all can lead to better overall outcomes when you don't have to have intensive follow-up for patients post-transplant as well, which can, can increase the risk for those that have less access to, to resources to be able to continue their follow-up as well. And so ways that we can mitigate those, those risks are, are important to understand too. Another area is, is really looking at uh, our clinical trials programs and the type of enrollment and accrual. We want representation from ethnically diverse populations as well as, as white because you need to be able to understand the differences in outcomes across all racial and ethnic groups and having appropriate representation on trials is critical to be able to do that. So putting tools in place to be able to ensure that you are enrolling in a reasonable accrual levels across each of those populations and make sure that the, the population is representative of the whole that could benefit from the therapy to be able to see if there are any differences between those groups and, and modify approaches appropriately. Right. Now, that brings me to the next question. When you look at clinical research and the recruitment of patients to participate in a clinical trial, there are many barriers, barriers to reach physicians and barriers in communicating with patients. And it may be even more complicated and difficult, as you've mentioned, to recruit patients from diverse ethnic populations. So what are you doing to solve this problem? What are you doing to eliminate these barriers and encourage patients to participate in an actual study? Are you directly working with physicians, patients, patient advocates, 
and patient organizations? That's a good question. Well, we we do work closely with patient organizations and patient advocacy groups to educate on transplant procedures, access to care, providing various services to to help facilitate patients or help facilitate the the process for patients that are proceeding to transplant and, and maybe need some additional assistance. Also, ensuring that we are translating our consent forms across various languages to, to eliminate a language barrier, anything that we can do to decrease that barrier and provide more resources to patients in need. We also have a clinical trials navigator team based at the, the National Maradona Program, Be the Match, in our patient services area that can help patients navigate the process in considering transplant or cellular therapy trials and help them understand what maybe they qualify for and provide them the tools that they need to contact the institutions that are that are sponsoring those trials and 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 seek the information that they need to potentially be able to participate so helping bringing bring down that uh, education barrier as well by providing one-on-one resources for patients to be able to address their questions that maybe they wouldn't be as comfortable uh, bringing to their their primary healthcare provider. So we have qualified social workers that are that are involved in in doing that work and helping those those patients along the way. And I assume that you also educate physicians in helping them to help you in the recruitment efforts by encouraging them to enroll patients in a clinical trial if they deem that this is necessary or maybe beneficial, right? Yes, that's true. And and the types of trials that we're doing as well. So I mentioned the 15 MMUD trial and the ACCESS trial, where those are targeted towards these populations that have a lower likelihood of having a full match on the registry. We do see higher ethnically diverse representation in those trials than we do in kind of a traditional treatment trial where nearly 50% of the population that was included in the 15-MMUD trial looking at post-transplant scion and bone marrow grafts. So highly ethnically diverse population there. And now our, our access trial, which is uh, midway through accrual in the adult population, we are seeing about that 50% ethnically diverse accrual as well, which is much higher than we see in some traditional transplant trials to date, where it could range between 10 to 15% ethnically diverse. So quite an improvement, but then again, it, it's partly tied to the treatment strategy and, and the patient population that uh, will benefit from that in the end. Let's take a break. This is the Young Gazim Brief. And if you're just joining us in today's episode of the Young Gazim Brief, I'm talking with Stephen Spellman, Vice President of Research and Senior Scientific Director of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be The Match. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Young Gazim Brief. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council.
This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Stephen Spellman, the Vice President of Research and Senior Director of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research at the National Marrow Donor Program, Be The Match. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. So the solution you're working on, mismatched unrelated donors, does that eliminate the problems we're seeing today? What's next? There's more work to be done. We're testing this one approach right now, so the post-transplant cyclophosphamide strategy using a rather high dose of cyclophosphamide. Now, that can be tied to some post-transplant complications like hemorrhagic cystitis or bleeding in the bladder that can be extremely painful. For our follow-on studies, really starting to think about decreasing the toxicity. There's been some pioneering work at the National Institutes of Health led by an investigator named uh, Dr. Chris Kanakri evaluating a dose reduction of cyclophosphamide in the in the post-transplant setting and showing some positive uh, results with going to a 50% dose rather than a, than a full dose. Now, that could lead to lower rates of toxicity, toxic results, or toxicities associated with the, the exposure to more cyclophosphamide, but then also looking at uh, other combination therapies. Uh, another drug that has shown some quite positive results in the mismatched unrelated donor setting using just single mismatch, so a seven of eight matched donor, and using a four-dose course of abatacept post-transplant. It's a drug that was traditionally used for uh, severe rheumatoid arthritis. It's a CTLA-4 Ig uh, antagonist and, and kind of blocks the secondary signal for T-cell activation. In a trial that was led by uh, Dr. Leslie Keene at uh, Children's Hospital in Boston, showed that where patients receiving a traditional calcineurin inhibitor-based GVHD prophylaxis strategy with uh, an additional four-course or four-dose course of abatacept had extremely low rates of acute GVHD and very good outcomes in comparison to a fully matched donor receiving actually had lower rates of GVHD than a fully matched donor receiving a traditional calcineurin inhibitor-based GVHD prophylaxis and a placebo. More encouraging results to suggest that there's other ways to mitigate that HLA mismatch risk, and could that be more effective in combination with post-transplant cyclophosphamide or potentially other strategies to uh, go with a calcineurin inhibitor-free type of a, a transplant approach that uh, has been explored by others in, in smaller single-center clinical trials. So lots of different options on the table and, and more that need to be explored to determine what's the optimal way of refining the transplant procedure to minimize the toxicity risk, but without having a consequent increased risk of relapse disease post-transplant as well. And so finding that right balance to lead to uh, good outcomes for all patients that are, that are proceeding to transplant. And with this, we are at the end of our program. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. I'm looking forward to future updates and positive study results. My pleasure, Peter. In this, the 100th episode of The Youngest in Brief, I spoke with Stephen Spellman, the Vice President of Research and Senior Scientific Director of the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research 
at the National Marrow Donor Program, BDMATCH. For more information about the Center for International Blood and Marrow Transplant Research, please visit the organization's website at www.cibmtr.org. More information can also be found in the article published in Oncazine. This article with the title is Finding a Doctor for All in Need of Allogeneic HCT Possible? New Modeling Says Yes. This article was published in our online journal Oncazine on September the 5th, 2022. For us here at the Oncazine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX Public Radio Exchange and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and nearly anywhere you can find a good podcast. For more information about supporting the Oncuzine Brief, visit our website at Oncuzine, that is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. That is 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. The Oncazine Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncazine and ADC Review, the journal of antibody drug conjugates. Support for the Oncazine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncazine at www.oncazine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncazine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.